Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. As you get a bit older, I think you are basically dealing with a different body every year. You've got a slightly different engine, you've got a slightly different chassis. Hello and welcome to Faster, the Dr. Hutch podcast supported by Cycling Weekly. I'm Michael Hutchinson, also known as Dr. Hutch, and I'm a former pro road rider and national time trial champion. This time I'm talking to triathlon legend Alistair Brownlee. Alistair is a two-time Olympic champion, a two-time world champion, a four-time European champion, and quite a few other things that in any normal career would have been major highlights, but which, when it comes to Brownlee, feel dangerously close to footnotes. He's also got a background in sports science, which makes him a very interesting man from the point of view of a podcast that's just a little bit obsessed with the science that underpins elite performance. Not only can Alistair do it, he can understand it. Try to change things, try to train in different ways in lots of ways there almost probably isn't much kind of scientific uh, focused literature on on training that I haven't tried in some form over the last 10 years although if you're hoping he's got a scientific reason to cut down on the long rides and the long runs i'm afraid he's going to be a bit of a disappointment my philosophy on it has been you basically want to do the biggest number of hours of volume you can do while you're still protecting your core sessions That's not all. He's written a book called Relentless about his conversations with other elite performers about just what it takes to not just get to the top, but to stay there. Which frankly makes it feel like he's got his tanks parked in my podcast's lawn, but he's Alistair Brownlee, so I can't really complain. I started out by asking him how he's managed to be so good for so long, given that his first world title was 12 years ago and he's been at the top ever since. I also asked him whether that makes him feel just a little bit old. Um, well, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. I mean, <laughs> I, don't worry, I definitely do feel old, uh, especially in, in most mornings. Um, and yeah, I think you probably know in a, a sporting career, you quickly, overnight, you can go from being one of the young people to one of the old people on a start line. It's it's incredible. Um, and I think probably that's happening younger and younger. I think we've seen the same in in cycling in in some ways uh, that guys in the young 20s are in early 20s are um but pretty much at the the top of the game it's um, very aggravating yes yeah and then all of a sudden you get to your mid 20s and you're uh, you're old <laughs> so um yeah what what's kept me there I, I think to be honest the main thing is what motivates you to keep training and competing and and to the best of your ability and um 
that's that's a fascinating topic in itself you know sources of motivation and um, the book i've just uh, written relentless I, I kind of ask everyone all of the people i interview uh, about their various sources of motivation and um it, it's fascinating I, th- I think one of the real key takeaways is actually motivation isn't this um this thing that comes and goes or people are indebted with and it's completely in- intrinsic it's the people who, who seem to uh be be good at things i think a it's it's kind of what they do it's kind of habitual it's who they are it's it kind of has to be kind of core to them but also they're fantastic at finding sources of motivations uh of, of motivation when when they need to for various reasons so get up on a monday morning this morning and I've, i'm going swimming if if i'm motivating myself to go swimming every single morning and then go and ride my bike later in the day and run with the same form of motivation that's to do a race in three months time that's probably a really hard thing to do um it has to be part of your life you have to use other sources of motivation you know are they, are they social things seeing people being competitive with people um is it something else you know because uh, you're gonna go out and because uh, you're gonna motivate yourself to train well because you, you're gonna have dinner afterwards or and then of course there's um there is the the type of motivation we all know which is motivating yourself to achieve the goal the the end end goal and i think it's a combination of all those things and yeah the people who are good at it uh, find the right thing at the right time i remember interviewing uh dame sarah story for my book since you've mentioned your book let's mm-hmm. swing on in there with that um which actually inspired the podcast. So there we are. I've got that in early. But I interviewed her for that book, and, and I talked about motivation to, to Sarah, and she said, it's, it's just what I do. Mm. I get up and I train. Other people go to work. I go training. And you know, I, I quite often I don't really think about it. I just get up and do it. I look at the I look at the planner. That's what's on the planner for the day. I do it the same way other people look at what they've got to do at work today. Um, and it was just very, very matter of fact, but it, it did chime with, with my experience of it. Um, so you think for you, the key is just finding that motivation to just get up and grind on through it every day without sort of having to have anything terribly, any sort of profound introspection. It's just, a it's, it's structuring your life so that you're a triathlete. Yeah, I, I completely agree with, uh, Sarah. It does have to be what you do. And I, I think it has to be what you do because, if you get up in the morning and uh, or you're laying in bed and you're thinking, oh, should I go training today or should I not? You're not going to go training every day, are you? You might go training every one in two days when you feel good or every four in five or even every 19 in 20, but that's still not good enough to be to perform well. So it does have to be what you do. It has to be completely habitual. And I, I think it also, you try and remove barriers to be able to doing stuff. Uh, so you know, I guess for me, a, a really simple, if uh, slightly obsessive example is you want to be able to know that you can find the kit that you need to put on to ride your bike and you're going to get a bike that works. And, you know, there's none of those barriers. Um, or an obvious one is if you're riding on the um, turbo trainer, uh, it, your bike is already set up on the turbo trainer. You know, everything's going to work because um, if you sat there thinking, yeah, there's 10 minutes of faffing around here to make it work. That's a barrier to doing it. For endurance athletes with big training hours and compromises that affect every aspect of life, motivation is really key. Just how do you keep doing it? How do you keep putting in the time and the effort, even when the next big target might be a year or more away? 
There's a lot more to motivation than just a dream of standing on a podium with a bunch of flowers and a medal. I asked sports psychologist and, incidentally, triathlete Josie Perry about it. Happily, I'd stumbled on her specialist subject. Where I would say we can get that structure from is from a a motivational theory called self-determination theory. And as a sports psych geek, it's my favourite theory. This theory basically says there are three types of motivation in life. And I'm very, very simplifying this now, so I apologise to the real geeks out there. But we have a motivation, the just cannot be bothered, that sofa is looking so appealing, I'm going to go and sit and watch the racing. Don't do anything. We've got extrinsic motivation. I want a medal. I want the money that they're paying me to be an athlete. I want my name in the paper. I want to be known as the greatest athlete. Those external validated elements. Extrinsic motivation. And then we've got intrinsic motivation. And that's where you just love doing it. You love the feeling of being on your bike, the feeling of being a kid when you go downhill, the feeling of finishing a really hard interval on the turbo and just knowing you've given it your all. And and that intrinsic motivation has three key pillars that help keep it running. The first one is a sense of belonging. So it's community, being part of a group, knowing that others are doing the same training, knowing that you'll chat about it on WhatsApp afterwards, that you're all in it together. It might have been a hideous session, but you all did the hideous session. So that bit's important. The next bit is mastery, that nobody wants to go and do something and make a prat out of themselves. So you want to know that you can do it really, really well. And you will put that time into doing it to a level where you feel like, yeah, I've mastered this. I'm not going to go and embarrass myself and be off the back straight away or not be able to sit in a chain gang. And the third one is autonomy, which is actually why I really like the idea of that coach saying to you, if you don't want to do it, go home. Because we have to want to do it. And I work a lot with junior athletes who are in that really tricky period, kind of 13 to 17. They want autonomy. They want choice. They want to make their own decisions. And they can't because they're living at home. They have to rely on other people for lifts to competitions or training. Or They're in that constant struggle bit. But when you've got it, you're doing it because you want to. You pick the races that matter to you. You pick or you do the training because you can see why it gets you to the races that matter to you. You have a voice in your training. It's not just listening to whatever your coach says. You get an input into it. And when you have mastery, autonomy and a sense of belonging, you have much higher intrinsic motivation and you'll do that day-to-day stuff. You may not be sitting ticking the box every day of going, right, I've got my sense of community. I'm mastering this and I've chosen to do this. But it's there And so you'll do the day-to-day work that needs doing, because it then also helps you go and get the extrinsic stuff. Tell me, over the course of 12 years then, for you, what's what's changed? Firstly, I mean, what's changed in terms of the physical side of it, the training, the nutrition, those those elements? Has any of, have, have you changed what you do? Have you changed your approach? No big uh, changes. I think one thing is that, um, especially as, as you get a bit older, I think you are basically dealing with a different um, body every year. Um, you know, you, you've got a slightly different engine, you've got a slightly different chassis. Um, so I guess the big thing that has changed is 10 years ago when I was in my early 20s, I could effectively do any training um, I could throw at myself and 
recover and I didn't really even need to think about recovering. And as long as I slept okay, I didn't really need to worry about what I ate. I didn't really need to think about anything else. Um, so that kind of change in approach of that well, recovery being more important and, and having to be a bit more focused with my trading um, has definitely changed. But in terms of my actual training philosophy, uh, that still remains pretty much the same. So you're doing the same sessions now that you were doing 10 years ago? Yeah, very, very, very similar. Um, same weekly structure of training in terms of what I do and what days I've always worked on. It. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I, I kind of invented a, a seven-day week, actually, when I was at school. And um, a lot of that week, the kind of relics of stuff is uh, a longish ride on a Wednesday afternoon because I had Wednesday afternoons off from school. <laughs> so I, uh, I did a long ride. Um, and yeah or kind of still uh, and i just happened to go down to a running track on a tuesday to meet a group and so that's why i always did a track session on tuesday and um a local a local cycling group a chain gang was on a thursday so i've always done my hard ride on a thursday so there is a lot of it is relics of uh that training week that i kind of came in i say invented but there was a lot of trial and error to get there um on various sessions moving them around so i've always stuck to a, a kind of seven day plan that's similar that the works of um they tend to monday and fridays tend to be a bit easier and three bit tougher days in the week and two longer days over the weekend have you ever had a coach who's tried to change that well, I've um, really my whole career has been based off um, having coaching input, uh, but input, and then I make the um, decision kind of at the end of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I've tried to change things. I've tried to train in different ways, um, in lots of ways that almost probably isn't much uh, kind of scientific uh, focused literature on on training that I haven't tried in some form over the last 10 years uh and yeah with all those kind of things that uh, my kind of philosophy is uh with, with training and sport is you know listen to everything or almost everything you can uh try and contextualize the information make a decision on the information try it out uh an objective try objectively make a call on whether you should continue doing it or not one of the intriguing things about triathlon, at least if you're an outsider like me, is how you combine three different disciplines. Especially three disciplines that are sort of related. They're all endurance sports in their own right. It's not like combining shooting with skiing or show jumping with fencing. I talked to Professor Louis Passfield from the University of Calgary about this. Louis is an exercise physiologist with a background that's both academic and practical. He's worked with national teams and he was himself a successful bike racer. I asked him about whether running would help your cycling, or if cycling would help your swimming, or if actually you have to look at them all one at a time. And if you do have to look at them all one at a time, well, what does that do to the total volume of training? One kind of training actually helps with something completely different when you do it on the odd occasion. So if you're a runner and you jump on a bike, you can expect that your cycling might be a bit better than someone that hasn't done any running or any cycling. So there's some transfer in there, but not not a lot. And it, it the higher the level of performance you're aspiring to, the more specific that preparation needs to get. And then there's one final point, which kind of links in with the, the question you asked me before about the overall volume as well. And that is that there's a suggestion that, that um, we have a kind of an upper limit of calorie expenditure. 
Um, and of, uh, that, of course, um, different people might have different limits. But broadly, from an evolutionary point of view, you can think about it, or it's been suggested that we think about it from the point of view of pregnancy um, and the developing of a fetus, carrying the baby, and then um, nurturing that baby once it's born as well. And that from an energetic point of view, this is a highly demanding kind of activity to engage in and that there's an upper limit of how many calories we can burn over a sustained period of time. So in this instance, we're talking about at least nine months, maybe plus the, the initial period once the baby is born as well. Um, and that if you try to go much beyond that upper limit of calorie expenditure, at some point you're going to have to come back to fall within a sensible range. And the people that proposed this study, and I, I apologize, I forget the authors now, what they did was they looked at a range of elite athletes practices as well and said that surprisingly they all form full within a similar kind of range so it's kind of like there's there's you can train very hard for a period of time but at some point you're going to have to slow down to enable your average calorie burn to fall back beneath that limit and the interesting implication of this from a practical point of view is that if you have a limited amount of resources it's then out down to how you deploy them how you spend that your time so yes, you can go for very long rides and you can do lots of training for a period of time, but at some point you're going to have to ease back. And have you spent your calories in the most wise way in preparing for that event? Because you've got a, I mean, you've got a sports science degree. Um, I mean, famously, you did go to Cambridge to do a medical degree and realized after you'd got to Cambridge that doing 30 hours training a week and a medical degree at Cambridge were two mm -hmm. activities that were not mutually compatible. Um, <laughs> I would suggest there were some people who had figured that out before, but that's, yeah. that's fine. Wasn't very bright on reflection. <laughs> <laughs> but you then went and did um, a sports science degree. So clearly, you actually, you know, you use that, you know, you're clearly quite engaged in what you're doing because effectively, you are your own head coach, you're your own performance director. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, firstly, I have always seen it as what's important. You know, I'm trying to get the best out of myself as an athlete. Um, so how do I do that? And obviously, that's a combination of doing the training, but also um, training in the best possible way. And secondly, it's a, a, a genuine kind of fascination. Um, I, I'm, I'm generally interested in almost anything uh, and, and, and learning and trying to understand and really get to grips with subjects. And there is no more important subject than getting to grips with um, how your, your own body works. And in our case, how to maximize the, the workings of your own body. So are you kind of still reading journals, journal articles, chasing all of that up? You're still kind of an active sports scientist? Yeah, I'll read... Um, journal articles yeah probably a handful a week maybe um oh wow okay yeah says says and um, but but you actually for all that there's not all that much that you've changed or the the individual sort of sessions and things changed within the within the structure of the week yeah the individual sessions um do change a little bit um and yeah so i might uh, have read a article on so what at the moment something very topical like preparation for heat um you know really important for the tokyo olympics and some of the long distance um ironman stuff that i do and what's the best and most effective way to do that um i, I think the most important thing with reading a lot of these sciences being able to contextualize it for how important it is um you know how it's going to work for me um and, and a bit of an understanding of the statistics around it um so yeah i might read an article it might have a protocol in it 
I might go away, try that protocol. I might think, well, yes, it's good or bad, or yeah, maybe I can adjust it this way or that way, um, and then decide to use it or not. But in terms of, I guess, um, training as a as a whole, um, I, I mean, fundamentally, uh, I, I, I haven't seen anything, um, and the evidence more recently seems to be backing kind of stuff up more that really endurance training is mostly whatever figure you put on it 80 percent about um low level endurance trip based training um to build your engine and then that that 20 percent specific stuff around it is where you can be a bit more specific and try things but the yeah the core of my week and i imagine most endurance athletes week is that um the, the kind of high percentage of low level uh volume training yeah it's always the thing that has struck me about triathlon is Coming, looking at triathlon as an outsider, because I'm a cyclist, I have all the various points also tried to be a runner and other things, but I've never tried to combine any of these things. The thing that looks terrifying about triathlon is you think, well, you've got three disciplines. So they're targeting slightly different muscle groups, slightly different systems. Two of them are non-weight bearing. And this seems to me like a combination for doing 40 hours training a week. Um I mean, you're, the training volumes of at least some triathletes really are absolutely massive. I don't know what Twitter, where you fit into that spectrum, but, you know, 30, 40 hours a week, this is sort of a danger I can see in just spending every waking day hmm. in the endless pool, on the bike, running, back to the pool. Um, yeah. Does it ever stop? Yeah, well, I mean, you can. I'd, I'd say my philosophy on it has been you basically want to do the biggest number of hours of volume you can do while you're still protecting your core sessions. So the minute that um, you can't hit the power you need to on your cycling VO2 session or you can't run the, the run reps at the, the speed you need to because you're too tired from the rest of it, you're doing too much. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have played around with that amount and I've been up and done over four, 40 hours of training in week. I definitely don't do that uh, anymore. Um, and, yeah, I kind of hover around lower hours, probably more like 30 to 35 when I'm training normally. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you can do massive, massive volumes. But like I said, I mean, there's – yeah, obviously the um, long distance, the, the kind of low level aerobic training is incredibly important, um, but it's no good to race at the top level unless you're um, really pushing the top end as you know, having really working that uh, VO2. The question of training volume is one that has intrigued me for a whole career. Almost every endurance athlete knows that big volumes are key, those four and five hour rides, those two hour runs, and all done at an intensity that's usually way below race pace. They're long, boring, and seemingly impossible to avoid. The question is, why? I asked Louis Passfield. There's kind of two levels in which I can comment on this from. One, uh, by thinking about it as a practitioner and my experience of working with elite athletes, and secondly, as a scientist. And the scientific answer is much much easier and more straightforward to give because it's that we still really don't know the answer to this question in terms of why all these bits fit together. We can speculate on some of that, so I'll elaborate on that part in just a second. But from a practical point of view, I think that there's a few things that, that um, are important here. And, and one is that triathlon has a history of preparing for the Ironman. And so it's always had a culture of 
um, people being prepared to run a marathon, ride 112 miles, swim two miles, um, and, and therefore it's associated with very high training volumes. And I think that even though someone like Alistair is probably primarily focused on the Olympic event, so much shorter distances, there's still he's, that he's, culture. Yeah, he's, he's kind of he's, he's kind of been doing shorter distance stuff this year, but I think he's actually swapping back towards longer again. But he, he doesn't mm-hmm. seem to draw a huge distinction between them from a training point of view in some respects. No, and I know that there's a, a lot of coaches in, in different disciplines so even in athletics, for example, where they feel that um, from, for example, in, in athletics, middle distance running upwards, the training broadly is very similar. It's what you do in the final few weeks to prepare specifically for the event that changes depending upon the length of the, of the event that you're preparing for. But the fundamental bedrock of training is, um, is, quite, diff- is quite similar across a range of different disciplines. So the, the, from a practical point of view, that, that often seems to be the case. And then sometimes there's good reasons for that. And a, and a, a couple of things are, one, obviously, the, the, the um, length of the event that they're preparing for and the ability to build the endurance for that. And it's quite clear that if you do longer training, you're going to promote the adaptations that sustain you in, produ- in producing longer performances. So you learn to metabolize fat as a fuel much more effectively, which is important because it spares your limited carbohydrate resources, your muscle glycogen resources. Uh, and that's a, that's a very obvious adaptation. Um, sli- slightly more subtle is that when you do longer bouts of exercise or you perform longer events, you don't always recruit all of your muscle fibers. So e- even um, when you're thinking about say swimming and the arm muscles involved in that not all of the the fibers in your muscles are active at once and your body has smart systems evolved to cycle through those fibers so it can distribute the load over over time and change that if you're training though you want to access all of those fibers and therefore the way to do that is to do longer bouts of training that fatigue some of the early recruited fibers and then are forced to recruit some of the later recruited fibers so then when you go into a competition, you've actually worked through all of the fibers in training beforehand. So they're better able to, to uh, contribute to your exercise. So that's an important element. And now I'm proud to present the question that every endurance athlete has at some point asked themselves. That is simply, is there a shortcut? Is there some sort of cheat training that gives you the benefits without the mind-numbing duration? Louis has an intriguing answer. One of my favorite studies, so apologies if anyone's ever heard me talk before because they'll have heard, probably heard me talk about this study, was conducted by someone called Robert Hickson back in 1978, 79, I think it was. And um, the reason it's my favorite study is because he got the greatest increase in uh, aer- aerobic uh, fitness, VO2 max, from a 10-week training study. And so one of the things I'm, I often look at when I'm um, examining contemporary research is not just whether they got somebody fitter in their study or not, but how much fitter and how quickly. It, it's something that we don't tend to talk about so much from a scientific point of view. It's like, what was the rate of gain in fitness? And this study from Hickson back in 1978 has shown the fastest gain that, I, that I've seen reported even from every study since that time. And it was quite a brutal program that they had, but it wasn't that um, extensive. So what they did was they had people running and cycling six days a week. So three days running, three days cycling. The running sessions were run initially 30 minutes and then extended to 40 minutes as far as you possibly can. So a 30, 40 minute continuous effort three days a week. And then the cycling was five minute efforts at the O2 max repeated up to six times three days a week. So it was it was fairly intense that you're either doing on um, six days of the week, you're doing um, either six efforts of five minutes as hard as you possibly can, or you're running 40 minutes as hard as you possibly can. 
And after 10 weeks, they'd seen phenomenal increases in aerobic fitness. And their fitness of their participants had basically gone up in a straight line, which again was surprising to them because they thought they would start to level out or at least slow down their gains a little bit towards the end of program, but they didn't. So one of the interesting aspects of this was they then thought, well, uh, I imagine ethics was a little looser in those days too, so they could modify the protocol um, on the hoof, as it were, whereas you wouldn't be allowed to do this now. But they went to their participants and said, we know we recruited you to do 10, 10 weeks, but would you do another 10 so that we can um, see whether you can continue to improve your fitness at this astonishing rate? And all of their participants, bar one, said, no, we were struggling to hold it together for the 10 weeks. There is no way you're going to persuade us to do anything more. So what it kind of tells us a couple of interesting things. One is that you can actually improve your fitness, at least on against a scientific baseline, as fast as is possibly been reported, training less than an hour a day, but six days a week. And the second thing it does is tell us that if you do take on this regime, after 10 weeks, you're done and you don't want to carry on doing that anymore. So there's a, you know, there, there, there's a couple of both important practical lessons from a scientific perspective. You're doing, um, tell me about the sub seven hour triathlon project that I kept reading about every time I Googled you in the course of just doing a bit of research, I kept coming up against, I kept reading about this. Yeah. So, uh, it was an idea that came out of, uh, a chat, um, nearly a couple of years ago. Now there was a group of us sat around, um, talking about what can we do? That's kind of a inspiring goal that will capture people's imaginations, um, and something that's difficult to do, um, but impressive, but still possible, and also allows us to tell the story around the, the science um, that goes into uh, a record attempt in triathlon, which is everything from you know maximizing your your wetsuit to swim as fast as possible to stuff that you're very familiar aerodynamics on on the bike, maximizing that, uh, maximizing run pacing, lots of pacing in this, <laughs> and um, and telling the story about that, and then going out and doing it. Uh, and that's what it is really it's going to happen this is just breaking seven hours for the full ironman distance yeah going under seven what's, hours what's, what's the current world record uh, the record is 735 um or something okay that's on that's on straightforward enough to knock 35 minutes off that yeah i can't but, i can't see this being at all troublesome uh, so yeah well it is we're going to be very fast uh <laughs> but and also like like the you know we are not doing it under Ironman rules. So. I was going to say, you're kind of... I mean, in some ways, this actually ties in really well with the kind of the performance aspects of this podcast because you've clearly, in order to do this, you're going to have to go and look at the limits to performance, the limits to speed that affect a normal triathlon. So rather than working just, as you say, rather than working within the conventional rules, you kind of, you rip that up and go, well, what's the actual... What's what The, the question you're asking is what slows you down during a, an Ironman other than pacing and nutrition? And yeah. looking at all of that. Well, yeah, and obviously the big one is air resistance. So, <laughs> um, so how are you dealing with that? Well, in uh, normal Ironman rules, you are not. You obviously can be as airy as you can. Um, there is not really a lot of restrictions. Well, there is restrictions, but it's not uh, UCI time trial restrictions that, like you'll see in terms of your bike and yeah. suit. So you can push the envelope a little bit there. 
Um, and yeah, you've got to be 12 person, 12 meters behind the person in front of you. Um, so you're not drafting too much. Um, although you still get a draft at 12 meters, but, um, yeah, so we, it's going to be some kind of team time trial format. Um, it has to be absolutely human powered. Like, you know, like I've said to lots of people, you could go very fast, maybe under six hours. If you, um, did a swim somewhere quite high, managed to find a downhill road with a tailwind behind a double decker bus. And then, um, yeah, ran on a nice 2% downhill gradient. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of not the point. So it's going to be human powered, uh, maximizing, um, the course I think is a massive part of it actually. Um, yeah, obviously over 180 K the perfect conditions. That's everything from weather meteorological, uh, you know, having nice, warm, fast, humid air, but then obviously you don't want it too warm to run. Uh, can we manipulate it? So the wind conditions at certain times of day, you know, initially going on, on offshore breezes or whatever that, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And just, yeah. Is it worth doing it out? That's a, an interesting kind of, sports science question obviously you've got massive decreases in um air resistance uh, when you start going to altitude and but less oxygen availability um, not so great for the running is altitude well yeah like, well because it sways that yeah it's running you going slow so you've um yeah air resistance isn't so much of an issue um as cycling and yeah you've still got the reduced oxygen availability so yeah and anyway, the same for and the same for swimming and the same for swimming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, swimming, you've got no real altitude advantage. Um, no. <laughs> and you've just got the disadvantage of the auction. Um, so, yeah, it, it was um, – so, yeah, the kind of interesting questions that I've – Have you, have you yeah. figured out the answers to any of this yet? Because it sounds fascinating. Uh, <laughs> it's a work in progress. <laughs> oh, in any other words, you have. You're just not telling me. Well, no, I haven't actually. Um, it's, uh, it's a project that um, – Kind of working on yeah it's um so the, it'll actually be in um spring next year so it's still quite a way off as well yeah that's a bit kind of my instinct is that altitude doesn't sound right because i'm thinking mm. well, what are you going to gain you're going to gain a couple of a couple of kilometers an hour if you're lucky on the bike then you're on the bike for 112 i'm i'm uh, i'm gonna have to go and work this out afterwards mm. um so uh, i mean what what then What's the value for kind of your normal triathlon of doing that, do you think? Because is it just a, you know, a kind of an Alistair Brownlee attention-seeking expedition or does it, do, do you, are you hoping it's going to teach you things that are useful for normal Ironman? I'd say mostly it is a project of interest uh, and it's a kind of ex- exhibition, you know. It's the, the idea is to capture the imaginations of people who might not otherwise watch triathlon and, and want to talk about it. Because um, it is it is like the 2R, the Ineos sponsored 2R marathon. It's the yeah, same it's, sort of concept. It's the very similar concept, yeah. And that's how, uh, you know, oh, we're talking about it now. So I think in that and seeing how far we can push the, the science out there and, you know, that is a project of interest both for me personally but also um, for, for other people, hopefully, getting them more interested in, in triathlon and sport and the sport. So there is that. Um, I am also hoping that there's um, plenty of learnings, you know, on stuff like obvious ones, uh, bike position, uh, suits, etc. I've already done a bit of work in, but it's definitely given me um, kind of the time and resource to, to do a bit more work on. Um, so that's that's really interesting as well. Are you making your brother help you with this? 
Well, the, yeah, there's a kind of I can have people in the event as kind of helpers, teammates, um, and he doesn't know it yet, but he's he's definitely going to be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> what is the well, maybe maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. What do you expect the mental pressures of that kind of event to be? Because that's very, very different from even from something like the Olympics, because the Olympics just happens. The Olympics is not all about you. The Olympics is an event that hundreds of people, thousands of people are at, thousands of people are competing at. And your responsibility there is to turn up in the best shape you can and deal with it on the day. This is a very different very different thing because this is literally all about you you are designing the course designing the kit even to some extent designing the protocol it sounds yeah, well, difficult it's a, good, it's a good point uh i think um it is very different uh so i'm not actually the only one doing it there's another man and and two women that are, are also doing it on the same day and they're going to do it in their own way so that's going to be interesting to see how they approach it and take a bit of pressure off i guess um but yeah there is a pre- there is a pressure to be there in the best shape it can be with everything ready uh, ready to go on that day in um early next year and uh, yeah i i think there is a significant pressure that comes with that um but i'm relatively used to i think dealing with pressure so i'm hoping i'll be okay on that yeah it's going the speed that is the thing that's concerning me more. Because <laughs> I'm actually, I mean, I'm even quite interested in, in sort of non-training stresses, um, life stresses, because one of the things that I became more and more convinced about the further I got through my own racing was that what determined how well I was going, it had more to do with what else was going on in life than it mm. had to do with actual training, actual racing, actual, you know, kind of a nice, happy, relaxed athlete. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, given you the the physical stresses that that try that that elite triathletes deal with are so profound, I would have thought the kind of any sort of non training stress is going to show up very obviously just because of the weight of 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 training stress that's going along with. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely something that I've become more aware of. I think as I've got older, and um, yeah, I think we're seeing quite a lot of that in science. It's a real topic of interest at the moment. People are using um, HRV as a proxy, I think, a lot of the time. Heart, the- heart rate variability are we talking about here? Yeah, to, to measure um, just general stresses in life and um, then working you know, working out if there's better or worse times to do certain sessions. And, um, yeah, some people are, are even looking at should we be completely advised off something like heart rate variability, when to do our harder sessions so we adapt to them, you know, most effectively to get the the best possible outcome. Um, and, yeah, I, I agree. I think there is a level, uh, and it makes sense that um, if you've just got a kind of level of uh, stress, uh, whatever, anxiety, just general wearing you down, taking up energy, um that you, you can't train to the to the best of your ability. And, yeah, I think that's right. I, I think ultimately, I think as an athlete, um, the people who perform well, again, you know, over a period of time, are the people who can kind of cope with those stresses and uh, still do the training they need to do, do the recovering they need to do and be on a start line ready to go. I remember interviewing um, a GB Olympic cycling coach, um, who left the interview halfway through because one of his athletes' cars had bro- had broken down in her car on the M6. And he said, honestly, today, the most useful thing I can do for her is sort this out. Mm. 
even if this is all we do today and she doesn't do anything else, otherwise she's sitting on the hard shoulder of the M6 with a smoking car and she's got a whole problem on her. She'll get very, very stressed about it. So right now I'm off to, I'm off to fix this. Um, and I thought actually the idea of kind of coach as life manager, I thought actually it does make, it does make a lot of sense. Um, and it just pulls all of that. It just pulls all of that down. Uh, to go back actually to uh, back to the book you'll be pleased to hear um the people who have been you know, people with, with long careers we've talked a bit about motivation um and just how you keep doing that over that kind of period of time is there kind of are the people who've had very long very successful careers also physically better um I mean, I, I always suspect that with particularly the psychology of those kind of performers, we end up focusing an awful lot on the mental attitude. And a lot of the people I know who, who are very, very good are very, very good because they're physically very, very good. And, and mentally, I'm never, I'm never quite sure that I buy the whole idea of elite sport being 80% mental. I don't think it is. I think 80, elite sport, certainly a kind of endurance sport I've done has a big physical element. And I wonder if people who are very good for a very long time are just phenomenal physical specimens so they can keep winning and keep being at the top even when they're not getting it all right. Yeah, but do they get physically good because of their mental attributes? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think ultimately I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, people who are ultimate top-level performers, um, actually even endurance sports or not, um, I, I, I think are just ultimately better. They've got some kind of uh, leeway room above their competition. So on a bad day, they can still win or be really competitive. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. That probably is physical. I don't know um, whether, um, yeah, how much the kind of yeah, psychological aspects play into that kind of physicality in, in the short and long run. In, in the long run, actually, are those guys are really good at motivating themselves, really good at pushing themselves every day in training. You know, all these things that ultimately build up to um, boost their physiology optimum. And then as we've just been talking about, are, are those the guys who are best at dealing with stresses, best at um, getting the most out of themselves, all those kind of short-term, um, on-the-day psychological attributes um, that also uh, point towards physical performance. Um, so, and I think it's a combination of, of both it's a it's a fascinating question and i think one of the things we we can say is that there's never going to be a um you know a, a, a double blind peer-reviewed study on why the the best people in the world are slightly better than the people who come fourth and fifth because it yeah it is so there's not, well, there's not there's not enough of you exactly it's why um, i always think that it's a shame that um simon and adam yates are kind of entirely wasted on on trying to win big bike races if i had a pair of twins like that i would be doing experiments on them personally and, yeah. and are you, i think you're probably the same with your with your your, your academic background um although to be fair you also have a brother who is noted for being quite a useful triathlete um and is that i don't know if that does that make life harder or easier there's a kind of the constant co the constant competition that you don't have to look outside your own family for i can see that as a motivation but i can also see it as an extra stress yeah i mean i think in truth um we've both at times thought about it differently um i do think uh, <laughs> I, I think with a bit of reflection and taking kind of a, an overview of it it is it has been massively positive um i think from a, a physical point of view of 
you know, pushing each other on in sessions. Um, you know, I can go training, like talking about before, motivate myself, get out of bed, and it is just what I do, and I'm just going training. Um, and then in a space of half an hour later, after really not feeling like it, I find myself in a swimming lane next to Johnny or, or running, and I'm absolutely going as hard as I can because it's competitive and I'm racing. And um, there's a real strength, you know, there's a real strength in that. Obviously, can't do it all the time and need to control it, but uh, it's important as well as going through it together. You know, the pressures and um, trials, tribulations, and, and going through that together. Ultimately, standing on the start line um, of two Olympic Games next to each other, and, and just being like, "Yep, yeah, you know, we're here, we're doing everything we can do. Let's go and do it." Um, but there has been a massive amount of value in that. I asked Louis and Josie about the issues of mental stress and performance as well. It interests me that you can ask a physiologist and a psychologist essentially the same question here, because this is where the two disciplines overlap. In some ways, that actually already tells you quite a lot of the answer. I started out with the question of whether you can separate the physical and mental elements of an athlete. Is it even possible to look at an athlete from a purely physical perspective, for instance? Even within an individual session, um, that, that, that the, the notion of a headless athlete doesn't work. And, and if you get the chance, I'd strongly recommend you um, get on your podcast at some point, a former colleague of mine, uh, Samuel Makora, who specializes in mental fatigue. And one of his seminal experiments, which exemplifies this very nicely, was he asked people to ride as long as they could at a set intensity in the lab. But before they did the ride, they either had the pleasure of watching a, a wildlife video, which was mentally unchallenging, or they had to, pro to perform a highly concentrated task where they sat in front of a computer screen. It flashed random letters in front of them, and then they needed to press the button when a certain sequence of letters were shown to them. So they had to sit there, concentrate really hard. And what he found was when they had to do the exercise, the performance trial after this, um, their, their cardiovascular, their metabolic responses were exactly the same under both, under both situations. So they were given the same task, their body responded in exactly the same way. But when he said, how do you feel? What's the, your perceived effort? Having done the mentally challenging task, they felt much, much more tired. And their perception of the effort, even though it was the same effort, uh, same, same physical task, was much higher. And they stopped exercising much sooner. So what we realized from that work and some of Sam's subsequent work is that actually our bodies provide us with the engine to, to, to um, perform. And if we train, we can increase the engine. But ultimately, when we stop is a mental challenge. And it's down to our perception of how hard the activity is and how much longer we think we can keep it going. And that's why motivation is also important, because as your motivation changes, then you can push just that little bit further into your mental reserve. Although Sam might not agree with that, but um, your perceived effort is related to your uh, motivation as well. Sam joined me as a colleague at the University of Kent when I was working there. Um, I remember him talking about his research. And at the time, I was somewhat skeptical. I was concerned that what he was describing was an artifact of laboratory experimentation rather than something that had real world practical application. And then as I looked over his shoulder for the next few years, as he worked at Kent with me as a colleague and, and saw more of his work and his findings, I was completely persuaded. So I moved from being a pure physiologist to someone now who I think, you know, kind of in, in the Descartes um, way of things is really puzzled by the, 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 integrate, the need to integrate physiology and psychology in a way that means we can't separate them at all. 
um, that we can make artificial distinctions between them. But actually, when when it when we think about this in the real world, it, those distinctions between physiology and psychology just completely disappear. So, given the importance of mental stress and performance, is there anything at a practical level that you can actually do about it? One of the sessions I will do with athletes is look at all of the hassles and stresses in their lives. And I have a list that I think is 151 different hassles or stresses. And we tend to think when we talk about life stress, we think about moving house or divorcing or moving job. We think about those big things. But actually often it's some smaller hassles that are going on that disproportionately impact us. And so actually I will give an athlete that very long list and they will tick off all of the ones that they've got going on and, and we'll grade it. So, yeah, it's annoying me a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about this. Yeah, it's quite significant. This is huge. And what we tend to see on average, apparently in the research, is that of those 150 type stresses and hassles, most people have on average about 25. And they'll have them kind of mid to quite annoying. What I will do with athletes when I've got that long list in front of us for all of their stresses and hassles is start to kind of theme them. So we'll see some of these might be about training. Some of these might be about where you live. Some of these might be about work. And then we will pick a chunk, a theme at a time to really work on. And how do we either help you cope better with it or how do we get rid of some of them? And some of them might be really simple. You're not able to get decent protein food at the club where you train. Okay, well, we're going to meal plan for you for the week so you can take in decent food with you. It's, it could be very simple things that you just haven't had in black and white in front of you before. And other things might be, actually, I need a coping mechanism to handle my coworker that's driving me nuts at work because they do not stop talking and I'm much more of an introvert and I need some space. Okay, could you ask your boss for a new desk? Like you, you literally break down those things into feeling much more manageable, feeling like, yeah, I've got some coping mechanisms in place right now. And then they massively reduce the impact on your performance. I've come across lots of athletes that their coach is a source of stress. So if their coach, if they and their coach don't have a good rapport, if they don't communicate well, if they are kind of quite a high needs athlete that needs lots of response and they only get one response, say a week from their coach, that will be a huge amount of stress for them. So I would say it's not about whether you're non-coached or coached. It's absolutely vital that you find a coach that has the right communication style with you and that you are open and honest and engage with them really well. Michael Owen, the footballer, had a really nice way of describing um, his self-belief and confidence. He said, confidence is transient, it comes and goes. You know, if you rely on confidence, ultimately you're going to struggle. Self-belief is very inbuilt and runs through you and, you know, stays with you for, for life. Um, and that's what's important. Yeah, it doesn't really matter defining the kind of lexicon, but I just really like that description of it. Um, yeah. And there was things that were completely, yeah, that were completely foreign to me. Um, I, or completely at the extremes, I guess, of what I know. So talking to um, jump jockey AP McCoy, uh, who was champion jockey for 20 years in a row, 
Um, you probably know more about this than me. It was, but he, he came from the next town to me back in County Antrim. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't know a lot about um, horse racing until I uh, was researching to write the book and then became completely, um, yeah, it's really interested in it. And, yeah, just, just the period of time. And the interesting thing or one of the things about that is, yeah, he was champion jockey for 20 years in a row, but... I mean, we're not talking about a few events here or there, or we're talking about thousands of races. I think it, the four and a half thousand races he he won in 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 the end across those twenty years, and um, actually a lot more losses than that. Racing for sometimes three times a day, many days of the week, and just the consistency of approach to do that for that period of time, uh, and how he talks about that, I just found absolutely fascinating. So what's what's the what was the what was the key to that? I don't know what what did he what was his approach that enabled them to do that? He just said ultimately you can never be uh, too high and you can never be too low. You can you take uh, yeah when you you could have your your best event and you've got to quickly move on and you know not be too up and your worst event you've got to quickly move on and uh, not not be too low about it. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought it was. Yeah, completely. Yeah, to to bounce between events uh, when I've you know, uh, and like you talked about earlier, we tend to spend months building up to events, try to race hard, recover a bit, do it again. But it was just a a constant um, conveyor belt of of grind for him. Um, another thing I've always been fascinated in uh, decision making and, and what separates really good decision makers in times of high pressure and high importance and events from um, people who aren't so good at it. And uh, I spoke to Killian Jornet, uh, ultra runner, uh, famous for trying to do fastest known times on various courses and, and mountains, including amazingly running up Everest. And I, I asked him what, uh, when you're on Everest and you, you know, you're on Hillary step and you're, you're above 8,000 meters, you're se- severely limited with your oxygen supply to your brain. Uh, how can you make good decisions? Because is you're not only trying to make good decisions, you're making life and death decisions. He said, the way I did it is I made it really binary. I asked myself, if I do this, is it going to kill me? And the answer to that, if the answer to that is no, I do it. And you just think, wow. wow. <laughs> well, that puts, that puts, that puts swimming, cycling, and running in some sort of perspective. Indeed, wow. yeah. Okay, I'm impressed yeah. with that. Um, Alistair, thank you very, very much for, for talking to me. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I've really enjoyed it, so thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fascinating to talk to someone who's been so successful and who can be so analytical about not only his own abilities, but the abilities of others. That desire to keep learning and keep improving is something that matters a lot if you want to get to the top, and especially if you want to stay there. Alice is also clearly capable of thinking a bit during those 35-hour training weeks, which is more than most of us have ever been able to do. It's probably more obvious with a triathlete than with someone who competes in a single discipline, but the conversation, and those with Louis and Josie, really brought home to me the balancing act that elite sport demands between training too much, training too little, between the single-mindedness of sport and dealing with everything else that's going on in your life. And it also brought home to me how everything is interconnected. It's not just about motivation, it's about total commitment. Thanks to Alistair and to Josie and Louis for talking to me. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to Cycling Weekly for supporting the podcast. 
You just heard a stripped media production.